You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one of my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. If there was only going to be one, I think people would probably wish it was Aaron. But don't be alarmed. He's just on vacation. Yeah, that man's in New Orleans. He's doing just fine. Some uh, needed re- needed rest and relaxation. Yeah, for his back. He's been going hard. <laughs> Max, who did you talk to this week? Oh, man, I was uh, really excited to talk to Leslie Jameson. Leslie Jameson is the, is the person who's on the show this week, and uh, I'd emailed her several months ago. I read this article that she wrote in The Believer that I really liked, and uh, I sent her this this email, and it was like, uh, you've written this, and you wrote uh, this wonderful piece called Fog Count in Oxford American, and I don't know who you are or where you came from, but I'd really like to talk to you for this podcast we're doing. And, uh, and she wrote me back, and she was like, why don't we wait a couple months, because like, I actually have a book coming out. I was like, I never heard of this book. I had no idea about this book. Sure. It's a collection of essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on when your book comes out, whatever. And uh, and then uh, her book did come out, and it is like a ginormous meteoric success. Everything. Bestseller, bestseller and acclaim, basically, from all corners. Much acclaim. Yeah. There's been much acclaim. So uh, she finally came on after all this acclaim, and we talked what about what it's like to sort of have this like sleeper unexpected book hit. Yeah. I uh, should also disclose that she we do we have her under assignment for the Atavist and it was sort of a similar thing we read some of those great pieces and we thought we're we're you know we're going to discover someone who a lot of nonfiction people don't know about and then now she's just like everywhere. But so you got it's fantastic. It. Yeah, I can't yeah, wait to great. read that one. Uh, what about sponsors this week? Oh man, we got a lot of sponsors. We got a lot of sponsors. I'm not sure you can tell from so far away in this uh Large, no, large, spacious studio, but I got a pretty clean shave over here. You can see I, the face. It's true. You can see the face. doesn't always happen. But uh, this morning, I shaved with a razor from Harry's. Do you know about this Harry's thing? No. Here's the deal. They, uh, they send you razors in the mail, send you shaving cream. Uh, it's way cheaper than the stuff that you would buy at the drugstore. Uh, it comes right to your house, and the razors are great. Look at this. Look at this shave. I look great. You look fantastic. Yeah. I hate the fucking drugstore waiting in line for the my the drugstore around the corner from my house. I like I desperately want to make like a documentary film about this place. You cannot you cannot leave there in under thirty minutes, and there's always somehow like fifteen people working, but only one person at the register, and the person at the register takes like. 30, 30 to 45 seconds between each customer to yell at everyone else in the store. Uh, so that all points to... Yeah, don't do that is the point. Uh, Harry's is pretty great. And uh, if you go to harrys.com and use the promo code LONGFORM, you can get five bucks off. And then uh, once you've, you've shaved, 
and you you look great. You feel like you look great. You're a new person. I know that Aaron, if you were here, would recommend that you use Tiny Letter to get the word out. You could start a newsletter. You talk to people about whatever you want. You got a lot of followers going, and uh, it's from the good people at Mailchimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, we have one more thing to mention, uh, which is that there is a survey that you should do for us. Uh, it's short, it's anonymous, it only takes a couple of minutes, uh, and it will be very helpful to us with these sponsors. Uh, if you go to podsurvey.com slash longform, that's podsurvey.com slash longform, fill out the questions, really does only take a couple of minutes, and uh, you'll have the chance to win 100 bucks on Amazon. And now here's Max with Leslie Jameson. Well, hey, Leslie Jameson. Hi, it's nice to be here. Oh, it is, uh, it's really nice to have you. It's uh, not not far. You live in Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm in Crown Heights. So. But you have been traveling. I have. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been in my own bed. I did a little Midwestern tour, and then I went back to California, which is where I'm from, and then I was just up in New Hampshire, Portsmouth. Nice. Amazingly quaint. Have you been up there ever? I have been up there. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's super quaint. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, there was a great crowd. Portsmouth yeah. really turned out. Yeah. I was, they, uh, I was like, they have a lot of feelings in Portsmouth, huh? They do. <laughs> They're really processing their emotions up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also teach. I teach for a low res that's based in New Hampshire. So I think okay. I might so have like had your, some your people students. came out. <laughs> yeah. My, my, <laughs> my mentees. So. How uh, how do you like that book tour life? You know, it's I mean, it's exhausting. I, I can't tell whether it has to do with the nature of this book in particular. I mean, I'm sure some of it is book book touring in general. But the thing about this book is that partially because it's about feelings and partially because there's confessional writing in the book. I think a lot of people want to have a moment in a, you know, like when I do. Yeah, a, like when, you're sitting. I, I mean, I'm picturing you like sitting at a table and people are like coming up to get their book signed. But everyone is also like uh, talking about lupus. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or just like re- like really wants a hug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's some of that. And the thing is, is like I I actually really want to give everyone a hug. Like that's <laughs> it's not that I'm sitting there being like I don't want to give you a hug. It's that I do want to give everybody a hug. But then I'm just tired. I'm tired. Yeah, like at all some the point, hugging. like the like the hugs just start getting kind of like lazy. Yeah. There was one when I read it. Um, City lights. There was an intense vibe in the room and a lot of pretty emotional emotionally driven questions and a lot of a lot of kind of quasi mother figures like older women who I think felt a a little bit protective of me in a certain way or like protective of the ways that I put myself out there in writing some of the pieces in the book so some of the questions were emotionally involved in that way but there was a long line a lot of interactions a lot of kind of medical a couple of medical conversations but then (laughs) by the last guy in line I had mentioned something during the Q&A about how I'd had started writing the essays when I was working on a novel about the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua that sort of um, I dropped or not dropped. I paused it for a while. (laughs) Anyway, hiatus is a a perfect word. Um, But this guy, he came up to, I was so exhausted. And he was like, so the Sandinista novel, he's like, Puedes hablar en español? And I was like, I couldn't even tell you how much I can't talk in Spanish right now, just like how little energy I have left to no, talk no in say, Spanish. No say, senor. No say. <laughs> no. But it was just, that was like a moment where I was just like, I've got nothing. I've got nothing left. But then you wake up the next day and you do some version of it again. Uh, wait, I want to go back to the um, motherly figures who yeah. were uh, concerned about how completely you'd put yourself out there. Like what? What, what was? What the hell was going on with that? What was well, that? Well, I'm thinking in particular, there are a couple of questions at that reading that had to do with my well-being or 
you know, what kinds of risks I was willing to take. But I was thinking in particular about this one woman who the setup to her question was um, made me a little nervous, like because she offered a couple disclaimers. She's like, I just she's like, this might come across sounding more negative than I mean it to. Is the first thing she said. And then she said, and I should also say, I haven't read the book. And I was like, <laughs> uh, that was a, that was a, that was my plan for how to begin this interview. <laughs> It's just those two. It's just a one-two punch. Like, can't wait for what's coming next. Um, her her question was basically whether I felt like I had some kind of particular obligation to take on the pain of the world or to try to empathize with the pain of the world, and whether I sort of had a sense of where my own limits might be in terms of how proximate I could get to other people's pain. So it it wasn't necessarily a question I had an immediate impulse on how to answer, ex- except that I do feel, and actually I was on the low Pate show a couple weeks ago and got a similar question about exceptionality, which I do like answering because I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm exceptional. I don't think I'm like the most em- empathic person who ever was. I, that's not why I wrote this to book. To be fair though, like uh, who would answer, I am actually exceptional. <laughs> I'm glad you My asked. My capacity for I'm- empathy is unparalleled. <laughs> It's a great question because the yeah. answer is yes. That's like, a qu- I've been I've been waiting for that. I've been waiting for that question, Lopez, and here's why. Um, so I I feel like in terms of you know insofar as her question was, I guess predicated on some assumption that I did feel myself exceptional in that way. I could I disabuse her, um, and also to to say that you know so many of the pieces in this book, it wasn't it wasn't just a question of getting close to somebody's pain. And that being an entirely painful experience, like there is a lot of adventure and travel and curiosity and the pieces in the book, too. So, I mean, a lot of it was really fun to write. So right. it wasn't just like a process of self-mortification over and over again. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were going on adventures to find the pain. Yeah. So there was some fun along the way. Basically, what? my answer was pain is actually really fun if yeah. you think about it the right way. So yeah. And also, uh, <laughs> like, so answer, uh, try and read the book. Maybe, maybe read the book. And also that sounded kind of critical. Um, well, I think we may have gone ahead of ourselves there. Uh, can you just describe quickly the book for yeah. people who maybe uh, don't know the book that we've been <laughs> talking about already? For I would love what somebody's impression would be just based on what we've said so far. A lot of middle-aged women readers, a lot of pain. Um, uh, no, I'm actually I'm, uh, legitimate, I, I'm legitimately interested to hear what your description is. Yeah, so uh, The Empathy Exams is a collection of essays that are a mixture of memoir material, reported journalistic material, some cultural history, some literary criticism, but they're all interested in questions like how do we understand each other's experience of the world? How do we understand each other's pain? How do we try to make our own pain legible? Um, So there are those questions linking them together. But in terms of their subjects, they're about really different things. So there's an essay about 125-mile race through the hills of Tennessee. There's an essay about a weird disease conference in Austin, Texas. There's an essay about Bolivian silver mines. There's another one about my years as a medical actor. Um, There are others. There's one about literary sentimentality and artificial sweeteners that's not so much about a journey but it's more this associative collage work so I like that or my hope is that readers get to feel like they go in a lot of different directions but that there are these echoes between the pieces yeah it's interesting uh my experience of reading is like I I read the book but I had also read most of the essays before like 
on various websites of various magazines and uh, had never connected the dots Mm -hmm. in the way that like the book so clearly Mm -hmm. does, you know, like just reading those pieces, you know, the piece in Harper's and a couple of pieces for the believer and uh, VQR and vice and all these places. I just sort of hadn't seen those themes connected. And and as I was reading the book, I wondered whether it was like all part of an elaborate plan, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or like, had you been like, uh, had, was the idea to always do these pieces and then bring them together or, did like halfway through were you like you know what I'm doing a lot of stuff with uh with pain yeah more the latter um so I started I definitely just started writing essays as one-offs I had no master plan part of that was because there was um this Nicaraguan novel that I was trying to write so that was always my master plan and I think I was feeling a little bit stifled in writing that novel because it was the master plan and because I'd always thought of myself as a fiction writer so that was where I had my identity claim staked um so initially, I just started writing essays as a little bit of relief or escape. Like there was there was less pressure on them for me, so I just wrote about it's like a, like quasi procrastination. Yeah, like I know it's the most ineffective procrastination for writing. <laughs> I just think I'm just going to do more writing write, that write, requires write some other shit. <laughs> spending money on a plane ticket and going somewhere I have no business being. Um, yeah, so I, I I wrote about things that were compelling to me, and some of them came up kind of incidentally. Like I was spending the summer in Bolivia because I was spending the summer in Bolivia and I went to silver mines and wrote about them. And so it wasn't like I was had some project in mind about voyeurism or pain tourism. And that was like a notch in my belt. It was it was more like I think my natural curiosities took me to stuff that when I started surveying it with a little bit of distance, I saw the ways that I think my natural inclinations were taking me to subjects that had some resonances between them. I mean, that's another thing that comes up while you're reading the collection is like, um, have you always been this interested in pain and you just decided to write about it? Like, (laughs) I I mean, where, like, where's the, what's the genesis of that interest? I mean, I guess we all have uh, some interest in pain, but it seems like uh, your interest is acute. Yes. Yeah. So to speak. Um, Yeah. I, I think that I'm interested in moments of deep, connection and knowledge and that I think pain makes people vulnerable in a way that you can kind of feel it's a little bit of an aperture so there's a moment in the final essay Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain where I'm breaking down different words that we use to describe pain like what's the difference between pain and suffering and angst and wound and damage and I think about a wound as this place where interior becomes exterior or there's there's some kind of opening in the body and I think that that is true about pain that it opens us up so when I'm talking to subjects who are in states of crisis or pain I think there's a there's a kind of access there and I and that also points to the dangers of writing about people in pain which is that you can leverage that access into something exploitative or take advantage of people who are in a vulnerable state to get a certain kind of story from them. I think that's real. I think that peril is real. But I, I also think that I am interested in, I'm interested in representing pain because I do believe in honoring suffering in some basic way. I mean, I think that's like a real imperative for me, but also because I think I, it's occasions where there's something that feels urgent and close to talk about something that feels like it matters. Um, but I've been writing about pain for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I mean those moments of openness, like it's, it, interesting to hear you go right to sort of the tension between like leveraging it into a story because 
you don't necessarily have to write about it, right? Like we, we've all had those moments starting from a very young age right. where where the, the moment was open, where, where we were open or someone else was, or both people were or whatever. Um, have you always written about that stuff? Like have you been someone who anytime that experience happened, you like went home and wrote about it? Well, I in in a certain informal way, yes. Like I have always been a real diary keeper and there there are many I mean I have a whole big drawer in my apartment full of diaries and pain in those diaries is defined as like you know Chris asking to borrow my TA-82 one day and then not asking another day like that's pain that got documented sure. thoroughly um, and then you know through some other stuff through the years but so I, I think there is an impulse to transcribe and and I mean and this is really I think true about a lot of people's diaries but certainly true about mine is it's it makes my life look way shittier than it was because I have a stronger impulse to write something down if it hurt or was hard then I mean there's so many happy days that just don't get documented because you right. don't there's nothing unresolved about them. You don't need to say something about them. So, Part of the instinct to write about those moments is to try and resolve the unresolved, like to try and figure out something that you didn't totally get in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure you can always resolve it, but I think it. I think that's part of the impulse to write about it is that something's not done with you in that experience. Like if something hurt or you felt for me, I, I felt spurned or rejected or confused or I was missing somebody like... There was a lot of unresolved emotion that just felt active in me. And I wanted to, even if I knew that writing about it wasn't going to resolve it, I still had the urge to, like, pushing on a bruise or something, I had the urge to tend to it in some way. And I do think there's a kind of relief that comes from giving something formulation because hard feelings can feel boundless before you put words on them and then you put words on them and you're like, okay, this is what it is, but it's not endless. Um, I think that's some of what articulating a hard feeling does. Um, But I also think sometimes happiness is, you don't write about happiness because I feel a little bit like a broken record. I I wrote a column for the Times about why it's easier to write about sadness than happiness, but I do. It's okay. I, you can uh, you can you can play your hits. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'm actually saying pretty different stuff here, and I'm talking more about my di- my diaries here. But the yeah, I think happy. I mean, when you're happy, like, what's the need to write about it? Like, there's there's not there's not as much urgency there. So yeah, I mean, I uh, it's kind of boring. There's uh, there's something that you said that sounded kind of sad, which is like uh, you got to write down the sad days, but the happy days you can just eh. It's like you forget about the happy days. Yeah. Which seems like a slightly like uh, you know slightly like melancholy way to go through life. Totally. Well, happy I'm days, actually, uh, you know, just back again. I've been trying to put. I've been trying to push back against it a little bit actually in recent years and trying to like document good moments too and and part of it is for aesthetic reasons because like you said I do think it can be it can easily become boring to write about happiness but I don't think it has to be like I think there is a really interesting compelling way to write about happiness it sounds like uh, another like collection of essays <laughs> the happy <laughs> yeah. the, the, the happiness, happiness chronicles yeah. 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 <laughs> I just like a big picture of me smiling on the front <laughs> like that's something I get a lot actually like um editors who work with me with a f- like you know over distance or whatever when they meet me in person? I think um, my first uh, my first novel came out from Free Press and the publisher there. When I met with him the first time, he was like, oh, "I was expecting 
He's like, I thought you might be a little bit more goth or something like <laughs> well, that. Well, I should like, say, like, you're uh, you're wearing like a bright yellow shirt and have like uh, kind of like bedazzled <laughs> bracelets on, and it's like a pretty uh, pretty happy getup you got on. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I mean, I think I, I'm I'm a pretty happy person these days. I'm a little bit happier than it's I used great to be. To hear. But yeah, <laughs> done. We're done. We're done. That's it. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We we for a while at Grey Wolf were thinking about the subtitle of the book being essays on pain. Right now, it's just we just stripped it to yeah. essays. Um, and thinking when I realized I didn't want that to be the subtitle, I had to ask myself why I did not want it to be the subtitle. And I think part of it was that I, I wanted these to be essays about pain, but I also wanted to honor the fact that there was a lot of other stuff going on in them as well, or that that was my hope, that there would be a lot of other stuff going on in them as well. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you about our sponsor this week. It's Harry's. Uh, Harry's, I know like everything in the world is described as simple these days. Harry's really is super simple. Here's the idea. Instead of going to the drugstore, waiting for someone to come unlock that case, because razor blades always need to be locked behind a case, uh, they come, right? They unlock the case. You've been waiting for a while. They give you the razor blades, like a pack of five or a pack of 10. Uh, either way, it feels like it costs about five times as much as it should. I don't know why razor blades, they're like Amtrak tickets. Just like that should not cost that much. Why does that cost that much? Uh, Harry's is trying to solve that problem. Here's how they're going to do it. They send razor blades to your house. They cost half as much as those ones at the drugstore, and they are great uh, the initial set, they'll send you a handle, three blades, and shaving cream. It costs 15 bucks. If you use the code LONGFORM at harrys.com, you get 5 bucks off. So for $10, you're going to get a handle, three blades, shaving cream. It's a pretty good setup. They sent us like a tester kit, so I could talk about this today. Uh, I shaved with it this morning. It is genuinely great. I look like a baby. Not actually like a baby, but I got a very clean shave. Uh, it really is super simple, super easy. It's going to cost you half of what those blades at the drugstore cost, and it's going to save you a bunch of time. So go check it out, harrys.com. Use that promo code LONGFORM. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring us. And let's get back to Leslie. You talked a little bit about uh, sort of these experiences on tour, and um, I sort of have seen it anecdotally and also like all over the internet that, that um, you know, sort of like the conventional wisdom is that collections of essays don't typically do very well or resonate very much. Uh, that appears to not be the case with your book. Uh, it's like a bestseller and people seem really touched by it. And I, I wonder why you think that is. Yeah. I mean, I have, have asked myself that question. I mean, it's been great to see it do so well. I mean, the thing with essays is it's always been counterintuitive to me that essays didn't sell better because it seems naturally to me like a form that would be really popular. It's like you get a single sitting dose of thought work reporting like you you know get to go on maybe on some kind of adventure. You get to meet some characters. You get to follow a mind tracking through some different concepts like all of that. It So it's it's almost like I feel more like I want to know why why there's this common wisdom that essay collections don't sell well or maybe it's more than common why there's many yeah. essay collections that haven't sold well because it just seems intuitive to me that it would be compelling for people and kind of compelling to get that confluence of like a bunch of variety but also some sense of following even if there's not a big thematic 
umbrella get to right. follow one mind or one sensibility tracking a bunch of different stuff like that seems pretty inherently compelling to me but i mean i listen i've like uh i own all of these things <laughs> and you know spend all day reading them so i'm not exactly the right person to ask but i think that maybe part of it is that collections are often uh, made up of things that have appeared elsewhere before. Right, right, right. right so right. there's this like lack of newness when it's like, right. uh, you know, someone's greatest hits coming out as a book or whatever. Right. And that's certainly the case here. In fact, uh, this thing that's sort of changed with collections in the last, yeah. whatever, 10 or 15 years is that um, not only is this stuff appeared somewhere else, it's like all available for free somewhere right, else. Right, 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 right. Uh, quite immediately, in fact. I, I mean, that's the question is yeah. like, uh, how is this leapfrogged that, right? Whatever right. that problem is. Right, 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 right. Well, some of that, it probably just has to do with the fact that I'm not, I mean, it might be that it would be harder for me to do this a second time than this time, because if I have, you know, if people know my name, they'll read the stuff when it comes out, and then it would be harder to sell another book of essays, right? Because I think some of why this book is a bestseller is that there are certain people in a kind of niche world who admired my work and read my book, like read essays when they came out. But even if stuff was available, it's not like they were going down the Leslie Jameson rabbit hole because it was just pretty (laughs) obscure, right? So I think that that, I think my obscurity is probably part of what meant that it could explode as a collection because individual essays had reached a large number of people but there hadn't been that sense of like I wasn't like John Jeremiah Sullivan where people right. so were like, like, with, like with the happiness chronicles you wouldn't do, you wouldn't do it the same way <laughs> right. the happiness chronicles might be more difficult or I might just have to I guess keep some stuff <laughs> close to my chest before I released it on the world <laughs> I guess uh, maybe that was a slightly leading question or I was expecting a different answer which is that the thing that you're tackling is um, is universal and um, and it's not something that people uh, grapple with, I think, as consciously as you appear to yeah, in this yeah. book. So my theory is that <laughs> uh, is that people are really excited to sort of engage with someone who's doing that work for them because it's really hard work to do. Um, and I guess I, I would just want to keep uh, pushing a little bit on where that instinct came from and and whether it was a sort of natural tendency as you started to just look for things to write to sort of put off the Sandinista's book that you started writing about this kind of stuff when you knew that like there was a theme here, when you knew that was going to be a book and um, whether this is something you can kind of like continue to mine, I guess. Yeah. I mean, one, a couple of thoughts on that one. I do think that there's some, something about empathy that it's both everywhere and nowhere. Like it's, it's, it's such a basic part of our experience, but I do think, you know, it's not necessarily something that people consciously think about or especially that people question, like it's sort of almost taken for granted that we know what empathy is like, oh, okay, empathy, like that word's extremely familiar, but. And that it's kind of elusive though. Like it's like, right. it's, it's got this whole like self-help tinge to right, it, you right. know, like it's, uh, it's like lose 15 pounds, gain empathy. <laughs> right. That was basically the last five years of my life. Um, no, I think I. Yeah. So I think that I think it's 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 right in front of people, but they don't necessarily know what it is. Or if you ask them, what is it? They might not necessarily be quite sure how to answer. And um, it's something that gets, I think, painted or seen through rose colored glasses. Like and I think that's part of the self-help tinge in this way or part of what the book is interested in is like what's dangerous about empathy or how can empathy go wrong? Like, you know, what gives there? Like what's a little bit trickier, or more polluted? Um, part of where my interest comes from, I think, is my own life. Like a lot of weird shit has happened to me. Some of it's in the book. Some of it incredibly isn't actually. Um, what do you choose to keep out? Well, there's just stuff that hasn't. There's stuff that maybe 
like the the thing I'll talk about right now is something that shows up like briefly in the final essay, but it's not really dramatized, which is the summer that I had to have my jaw wired shut. Um, So there are stories that just didn't fit because they weren't they weren't something I needed to deploy to answer questions in the essays because that's really always where personal experience comes in for me. It's just another thing. I can use to approach a subject like I don't start with the idea that it's better to write about personal experience than something else and I don't start with the idea that it's like shameful or lazier to write about personal experience and other stuff which I think is like a, a little bit of a taboo that attaches to confessional writing sometimes sure. it's just I mean there's this element like you get your jaw wired shut and there's a part of you that's like this is going to be great. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> at the time I was so I don't know. That voice was very, very quiet in me. But I did. I mean, I definitely thought about what I was going to call my memoir about the experience of having my jaw wired shut. And then I was really pissed off because I, I wanted to write a, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to call it Autobiography of a Face because I was like, oh, that's my face. And then I discovered that Lucy Greeley had written a beautiful and totally brilliant book called Autobiography of a Face about a – I mean, her facial story was a more epic and, and sadder story than mine. But – so yes, I think from very early on there was a sense of how every misfortune could get turned into a kind of literary currency too. But um, I think part of what was interesting to me about that experience was that I felt totally consumed by myself that summer. Like I felt very, I was very vain. I was so caught up in, you know, was my swelling going down? How fast was my swelling going down? Like it was very petty and banal to be inside an experience of pain. And I think that's part of what my essays are trying to do is like figure out a way to talk about pain that's just honest that's not always turning it into glory or like um the Randall Jarrell quote that I'm probably gonna miss misquote but like we looked into the darkness and thought we saw wisdom but it was only pain it's it's really getting it off but it's this idea of sort of like we we're always trying to we're always like believing this alchemy of converting pain into something more than itself but sometimes it just hurts and that mess and irresolution is something I really wanted to do justice to and also to just think about this central tension of like when does pain make us more available to other people's experiences like thinking like I've gone through something hard I kind of have some sense of what you might be going through and when does it just shut us down and make us more closed off and worried about ourselves and that tension has always been really interesting to me because I felt it too. I felt both sides of it. I felt like my jaw's wired shut and I care about my jaw. I care about my face. I care about myself. But I also have felt this, you know, when when somebody talks about losing weight after surgery and, you know, having to down cans of Ensure, I'm like, I've been there. Like I, you know, and so there are these ways that that experience also makes me kind of feel connected to what other people are going through. And then, I mean, writing about that stuff allows other people to connect to you. Yeah, there is. There's especially with that last essay. I there are so many young women. I mean, that I've heard from like just emails or like signings. I mean, there was this incredible. I did this reading in Ann Arbor, and this like. I mean, it was like I felt like I had one of those moments where I was like, "This is why I'm a writer." Like this 19 year old girl, dark eyeshadow you know, denim jacket, Doc Martens just like comes up to me and she was like, I just want to say thank you for writing that essay because she's like, you know, there's all this stuff in my life, like when I get fucked up and sleep with the wrong guy and I just don't think those stories are worth anything. But it's like you're saying those stories are worth something. And I was like, yes, (laughs) I am saying that. Like, 
like this is the best like the fact not not that you're sleeping with the wrong guys and you know (laughs) what I mean like stop that stop don't do it anymore but also like your stories do have value you know and and I actually flip side of that I got an email from a young woman who said that reading that essay had stopped her from sleeping with a guy who didn't like her that much and I was like Awesome. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I, I sort of love imagining like an, a small army of like 22 year old men who are just like, fuck this book. Like, <laughs> I wish that fucking book had never fuck, been published. Fucking empathy lady. <laughs> Spurning 22 year old assholes like the world over. Yeah, that's, that's a good byproduct of having your, your book blow up, I guess. So I'd read all these essays, or I'd read many of the essays, you know, in their like, Disambiguated form. Yeah, is that a word? Sounds right. Sounds, I think let's a, go with I, it. I'm pretty sure I just made up that word, but, <laughs> but we can go with it. Um, but uh, in the book, there are some things that you don't get in in these various individual stories, including that the whole thing is dedicated to your mother. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny because I never really had a choice point with the dedication. Like there was never a moment where I was sitting in my room and I was like, "Who is this collection for? Like, what should I Who's do?" Who's the that source page? of most of my pain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little thank you for <laughs> for all the source material in here. Um, it's dedicated to my mom, honestly, because she has shown me more than anyone what it might look like to care about people outside your kind of immediate circle of kin. She she worked in public health for many years and now has been for the past, I think, 12 years an Episcopal deacon in Los Angeles. And so she does a lot of outreach work in the communities and is hugely involved in social justice. But there's this way that I think very authentically she cares for and about strangers. And that's just like been manifest in so many ways. And it's and as her daughter somebody she she cares about in a more intimate way I've seen the ways that those two kinds of care are like not it's not like you have a finite amount of like love water in your well and you have to like <laughs> anoint it you know in a very in a in a in a careful zero-sum finite way it's like you can actually live with kind of intentionality and attention towards others in this way that just kind of almost creates more of itself and that seems very true for her um so it felt really natural and also she just like raised me <laughs> also, that's like just the least I could do. Exactly. Were these kinds of conversations that you were having all the time? Like, like, did you grow up in a household where that kind of uh, sort of like open conversation where you're talking about the dynamics between people? There's a, there was a line in one of the essays that you, know, you talk about someone like understanding the nuances in a room, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, was that like level of analysis being done in your house when you were a kid? Yes. I have two older brothers and a mother and a father. And I would say everybody in my family is in a slightly different place in terms of how explicitly they're discussing things like the nuances of relation in a room. But certainly my mother has very sensitive nerve endings in lots of ways. She's very sensitive to the feelings of others. Her own feelings are, you know, pretty alive. Um, And I'm very much like her in both of those ways. So the women in my mother's family are very strong and very emotionally intelligent. And we would all gather in Berkeley, which is where my grandmother lived and where my aunt lived. So I have a lot of memories of this kind of matriarchal scene in this like Berkeley craftsman house where just like feelings were on the table a lot and in pretty explicit ways. And so I think I did. I had a lot of models in my life for what it meant to be kind of honest about honest about feelings and honest about how messy feelings are rather than just presenting a kind of cookie cutter version of how something felt. Do you think that's always healthy? Like, do you think it's it's always worth like diving in? I feel like sometimes like um, 
uh, I can think of several like relationships in my life where my instinct is to be like, um, let's just talk about it. Yeah. Here's here's the thing that I think is going on. And um, and a lot of times people are like, oh, man, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. No, that's and that's actually I think that's like a big I think that I hit a, a, a relative maximum at a certain point in my other. My brothers and my dad are economists. So every once in a while, my super emo vocabulary will like feature <laughs> an indefinite integrals metaphor word like relative maximum. But I think I really maxed out on this idea that total honesty, total transparency, totally diving into everything was was the way through every kind of problem. And I do think I've come back from that a little bit. I think there are situations where you don't need to talk through something. You just need to kind of live through it or get to the next day or wake up the next morning and start fresh or there's a piece of wisdom that I really like partially because I had no idea it bewildered me so much at first that I felt drawn to it and that piece of wisdom was sometimes the solution has nothing to do with the problem which could mean any number of things but to me one of the things it means is sometimes the solution isn't just endlessly breaking open the problem dissecting the problem sometimes the solution is like going for a walk or, or like eating something good or you know that sometimes you just need to like give an issue a little bit of breathing room rather than breathing down its neck like yeah <laughs> yeah that seems uh that seems right i think the constant breathing down the neck is probably not uh not it's a, it, at the very least it's not like a sustainable way to go through life yeah well and i know that no matter how much i urge myself away from the breathing down the neck thing i'll still keep doing i mean that's very much where my natural impulse lies so i think i can kind of push away from it and i still know that something in me will i'm never going to become a repressor i think that's not my particular doom in this world so yeah. well it's, yeah. i think yeah it's gonna be tough to get all the way there yeah from where you're at yeah <laughs> okay so so your mom's got like uh you know the nerve endings are 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 right there your brothers and your father all economists was there any chance that you were gonna like go down that road <sighs> great question i was really good at calculus like i don't mean to but I just have to say I was really good at calculus. I did. I mean, there's something that I really love about a certain kind of quantitative mathematical thinking. And it's interesting in terms of some of the stuff we've been talking about, because part of what I love about certain kinds of math is that you have a problem and then a solution. And there's something kind of really neat about, like, say, with an indefinite integral. Like if you're trying to measure the space under an uneven curve, there's actually a way that you can do that absolutely, which is totally magic and kind of the opposite of what so many of my essays For do. For example. For example. For example. Right. Good. Totally got that, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think there's something, I mean, I'm drawn to mess, but I think that because of that, there's this counterforce in me that's drawn to resolving it. But that said, I really hit a, I hit a ceiling, I think, after... <laughs> high school calculus where I realized I actually wasn't that good at math. So um, I've sometimes... Well, you went to Harvard, right? You did, did. did you like try and do math at Harvard? And you were like, and oh... I did it I'm for a semester, yeah. I couldn't... Writing, I, <laughs> I had to get so much help from somebody in the class. I ended up going to a, a dance with him. I got sort of guilt guilt tripped into it and I think that was the moment where I was like, I can't sign my uh, life away for this. That is the premise of like such a terrible Harvard movie. <laughs> yeah. I know. It'll get made someday. It'll get, we'll write it. There you go. Okay. So you gave up calculus, but uh, has all of your like familial economic insight provided you any uh, insight in, in, into like uh, the, the economics of the writing life, which is the thing that people are very interested in hearing about on the show. It's like, uh, 
Are you like, did you find a way to make, like, make way more money than any other writers? <laughs> Have you, right? I've used my brother's expertise yeah. to crack the code. Um, well, you I mean, do, there's like, high frequency writing trading somehow. <laughs> Short selling, yeah. terrible writing. Um, I, yeah, I mean, sometimes it just manifests as disjunction. Like, one of my brothers has been an investment banker for over a decade, and he'll, he used to ask, I think he doesn't even ask me these questions anymore. He used to ask me questions like, what's your five-year plan? And I'd be like, I have a five-month yeah. plan, maybe. And so, so sometimes it was less like I was using their wisdom and more just like I was, I was felt like I was living on a different planet from them. But I do think there's a, I do think that, um, well, on two levels, I think that the kind of discourse of economics in my family has, I don't know whether it's necessarily made me more savvy but it has meant that like when I you know when I can save money I do and my writing life has been one where there are definitely times where I can't save money and other times where you know I think there's a natural kind of boom bust economy to how most writers work where like maybe you sell two big features in the course of three months so you have like thousands of dollars coming in but then maybe you don't sell anything for Many, many months. And so it's sort of like re- trying to not be a total idiot about, <laughs> about about that kind of stuff and trying to remember that, like, you might make thousands of dollars that are actually coming in as thousands of dollars, but, like, there will be, like, a 1099 <laughs> right. come April and you're going to have to deal with that. And so I think that there is a little bit of sensibility that has trickled in from the men in my family. But I also think it's it's actually made me interested in writing about economics, which is not, like... I'm no expert, but I do think I'm interested in how money is often a part of the story, even when it doesn't seem to be a part of the story or even when it's not on the surface of the story, um, because it's always been part of the story and people, that people tell and, my family. So. Right. And people are always fascinated by it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it is like, no matter what the industry, no matter what the thing you're talking about, like there's, there's always that element to it. And uh, if you can find a way to talk about it, It'll be pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah. And I'm much more interested in, you know, I used to write stories where, when, when I was writing more fiction, I used to write stories where characters were sort of disembodied in, in economic terms. Like, it wasn't clear if they had a job or how they paid their rent or anything like that because those sort of felt like boxes to check that I just wasn't interested in checking. But I actually have come to feel more like it is really interesting to think about how people make it work in the world. Like, all of that is less like just kind of the logistical data that you have to fill in it more like occasions for really interesting tensions and drama and all that so let's talk a little bit about um going from writing fiction to writing this kind of stuff yeah not purely on the procrastination front <laughs> but like I'm, I'm interested in I mean you'd only basically written fiction before right. you started writing these essays how do you think that informed that work? And I'm particularly interested in like how you approached these events where you're you were like reporting, you were doing yeah. some form of journalism. Yeah. People do often sort of go the other way, I guess. So how do you think that affected the writing and, and particularly the reporting? One thing to say is that my fiction and my nonfiction feel really continuous in certain senses. Like I think I'm I'm really interested in loneliness, weird ways that people connect to each other, uh how our physical bodies shape our experience, our emotional experience of the world. And like all of those things come up all the time in my fiction and they come up all the time in my nonfiction. So there's a way that all the writing has certain points of concern that just haven't, I mean, they've changed or shifted or evolved, but it's, I still feel like me writing across those two genres. Um, And I think, I mean, in terms of things like, there's a lot about being a fiction writer that I actually think makes it, that's useful when you're reporting. 
there are certain things that aren't like you have to kind of get over. I, I mean, you have to you have to humble yourself to the fact that you can't make stuff up. And that's obviously basic, but it's hard. It's and I and I feel that danger as a former fiction writer. And I think, you know, sometimes talking to people in the journalism world, I realize I have a lot more sympathy for figures from the creative nonfiction world who take a lot of shit for playing loose with the facts like I I kind of it's not that I defend those practices but I just understand so absolutely where they might come from but that said I think when you're used to building scenes and building characters through really pitch perfect details it sensitizes you to looking for all that stuff when you know when I show up like the Morgellons conference like when I show up at that Baptist church in a parking lot in Austin, like I, I know what I'm looking for. Like right. I don't know what I'm going to find, but I know that I'm looking for the weird T-shirt in the corner. I know I'm looking for the woman who's standing off to the side of the crowd and seems like she doesn't know who to talk to. Like when you're looking for that stuff, though, like how how open can you be to what unfolds in front of you? Well, I, th- I mean, I but I think that is the way that you're open to what unfolds in front of you because it's not like I come with a predetermined sense of what I need to find. I mean, sometimes I do, and I struggle against that, and I try to let myself feel pushback from the actuality of whatever's in front of me to let it shape my story or make my story something else. Um, But I think it's like this sense of what's going to make a character memorable in a reader's mind isn't necessarily the big statement, the big summary statement they give you about their illness. It's like the weird comment they make about the thing their mom said two weeks ago. And I think some of that to me feels like my fiction writer self getting attached to moments of heat in a conversation um, and paying attention to good details. And because that's the thing with nonfiction, because you can't make anything up, you need to take in as much as you can when you're in the middle of a scene like and I mean you can do that in a conversation by recording it but with everything else you need to you know you need to you know you should take photographs you need to kind of write stuff down so that you give yourself the biggest possible palette you could possibly have later like if you give yourself as like hundreds of details then you'll just have more colors to paint with when you're like trying to write the story and did that come naturally when you started doing this stuff like did you did you just know how to do that like out of the box well I what I what I had naturally was a real desire to paint the most evocative scene that I could so it's almost like I had to sharpen my journalism skills to give myself more to work with when I was doing the writing part of it um so I I've definitely because I've I I there are lots of ways in which being a reporter doesn't come naturally to me at all and I've also never been formally trained so there's there's been a really major learning curve for me. What are the parts that are hard? Oh, I don't like talking to strangers. Um, (laughs) I I sometimes am really focused on being a people pleaser. I don't like saying things that disappoint people. When I am connecting with somebody, I want to do everything I can to just make the moment as intimate as possible so I can be kind of averse to taking notes or recording. Those things kind of hamper my interpersonal style. So all of those are things that I've had to struggle against. I mean, the biggest one is the thing about talking to strangers, though, because it's like really literally it's like what being a reporter is. And like (laughs) it's one thing to talk to the subject who's like, wow, like I've always wanted to tell my story and here we are and I'm getting to tell you my story. But it's another thing. The subject who doesn't want to talk to you, like it's my literally my worst nightmare to sit down at a lunch table 
with somebody who doesn't want me to sit at the table with them. And so much of being a reporter is being like, I know you don't want to hear from me, but I'm calling you again. Like, How do you psych yourself up to do that? I mean, how, how do you learn how to do that? I mean, I think ego helps because if I'm thinking I want to write the very best piece that I can and I know that talking to this person is going to make the piece better, then ego can help me. And, and also kind of wanting to avoid the pain of like self-flagellation later on if I'm like I regret that I didn't do that or it would have been a better piece if I'd tried like knowing that I've kind of tried everything prevents that feel that feeling of being disappointed in myself later on so I think there are all kinds of elaborate little mind games that but sometimes you just have to call and just jump over the cliff and then deal with whatever conversation ensues um it's important to let myself confess moments of journalistic failure or fallibility when that can be a fruitful, engaging part of the story. But I also think it's important to just know when to cut your losses and that every reported piece worth its salt probably has like, you know, 90% of the reporting was figuring out which ends were dead ends and which ones were going to yield and taking trips that didn't pan out. And that's all part of the story that is, but not because all of it is narrated, but because some of it you're just willing to, you know, cast off. Because, yeah, so... Learning what to let go of is a harder lesson for me than learning how and when to be honest. I mean, that's I'm sort of not surprised to hear you say that because like the uh, the book is pretty like relentlessly honest. Yeah, and there's uh, uh, you read about your abortion and heart surgery and getting punched in the face in Nicaragua and various other rough moments mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. your life. Um, and I, I wonder whether both in your writing and in your personal life whether once you've gone that far, whether you can turn it off, like whether there's like an on, on off switch for that kind of like level of um, openness, like yeah. public openness and, yeah. and and general openness. Like it, part of what comes through in the book and just in talking to you here is like, you're pretty thoughtful. Like you're thinking about this stuff a lot. And, and um, maybe this is kind of like relates back to the happy days, not writing about them in the <laughs> journal, but like, I wonder like whether they're, you can turn this stuff off mm-hmm. or, or whether um, you're sort of like at a 10 all the time. Yeah, I do. Th- I do. I do hope and think that I have an off switch. I mean, but I think it's I think it's a really useful question. And in terms of things like personal revelation, it's very important to me to draw boundaries between revealing something in an essay and revealing something in a conversation with another human being are very different things for me. So it's like, because I wrote about my abortion in an essay doesn't mean I'm available to talk about my abortion with everybody I ever meet. Like, even though everybody I ever meet could meet that, could read that essay. It's sort of like there is a version of myself and my experience that I've chosen to make public. But of course, that experience is infinite and complicated beneath the version that I've chosen to share. And it's not like it's all available for public access. And so I think some of those boundaries around like, here is what I've presented to the world, but here are the limits of what I'll give are, it's not like I've completely figured out what those boundaries are, but I am really invested in thinking, thinking through that. There's a way that it can become this endless hall of mirrors where it's like, okay, I've written something confessional and now I'll speak in a very confessional way about what it was like to write that very confessional thing. And right. it's just sort of endless and there's no, there's no boundaries around it. So, but it seems like after, <laughs> it seems like you're interested in thinking it through. Cause like you, there's like an interview in your book about the stuff. Yeah. Like, like, um, 
it seems like the, this conversation is one you're pretty like game to have. Yeah, no, I, 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 I am game to have conversations about all of it, but I guess I'm not game to have conversations where I just talk endlessly about the personal experience itself rather than thinking through these issues around what confession means or what it means to be a writer. Like the, the sort of all the intellectual questions that rise up from it, I think are wonderful. And I'm happy that people want to talk to me about them and I'm ready to talk about them. But that feels a little different than just like sitting in an interview and talking to somebody about what it was like to be in a hospital room six years ago. Like that's the kind of stuff that I'm, it's important to me that I sort of assert my prerogative to, to choose to talk about that or not as I wish. And I think that comes up not just in professional interviews, but in exchanges with people who write to me in very confessional ways and want something back from me. I both love that they want something from me, but also have to figure out how to not give it to them um, <laughs> because it, it's it, you can't have a personal relationship with everybody who has a personal relationship with your book. Like that's just a bottom line and it right. feels self-evident to say it, but it's like when somebody writes to you in a really open emotional way, like the same thing that made me want to write these essays in the first place, of course, wants to respond to that person in a kind of no holds bar sort of way. But I, I know that in some bigger picture way, that's not a sustainable way to engage with a readership or with the world. And you must have done some of that, though. Responded. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, and I do. Res- I My goal is to respond, if I can, to everybody who reaches out to me. I mean, right now, there's just like a huge backlog. But I think one of the things that I'd like, say, for my summer is to go through and just write notes back. But I think there's a difference between being like, I hear you. It means so much to me that you shared this with me. And another kind of response that's really opening the door to a relationship. So, mm-hmm. Do you think that going forward you will, you will write less about yourself? What I, would, what I would love to keep doing is writing about myself in a way that's intertwined with reporting and criticism and gazing outward in those various ways. So I'm, I, it's not that I think I'm done writing about myself, but I also don't want to become a memoirist or a wholly autobiographical writer, which is not to say, I mean, there are many writers I respect who are more firmly in that territory. I just don't feel quite like that's my territory. What do you feel like is your territory? Well, I think something much more hybrid, something, um, I mean, I do feel like these essays are pretty representative of not just where I was at three years ago, but where I'm at today in terms of the kind of writing that I want to do. Um, my hope for the next project is that it'll be a more continuous book length exploration of a single topic. So sort of doing the work of these essays, but on the scale of one big project. Right. So yeah. The Happiness Chronicles. <laughs> all about being happy all the time. <laughs> um Leslie, thanks a lot for, yeah, uh, for is, taking all the time. I appreciate this it. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern this week, Sarah Button. Thanks to our sponsors, Harry's and Tiny Letter. And thanks very much to Leslie Jameson for taking the time. Her book is called The Empathy Exams. I recommend it. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, should you feel so inclined, go to iTunes, leave us a comment, rate us. We'd appreciate it. See you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.